Uh, North Carolina University, in concert with, uh, see if I can say this right, Protivity, conducted their annual survey of executives for 2017, and they tend to use risk as a lens. I've looked at this survey before. Uh, and of course, in, in, in doing so, they've identified the top 10 issues of, of risk from a macro to operational scale using the lens of risk. The results point to higher perceived risk, except by board members, which is an interesting thing that I'm, I'm sure my guests today will comment on. And there's clearly no plans to address these issues, at least not through risk management. The question, of course, that this raises in my mind is, could this be because executives are leaning toward using risks instead of preventing risks and mitigating them and controlling them? And, and that's where agility can actually be gained and, and innovation, of course. You're listening to the Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones. My work is in the area of transformation in terms of personal right through to global uh, using the lens of decision-making mindset and leadership. And with me today is Dave West of Scrum.org. And Dave works with executives and boards on understanding and gaining greater agility through through agile and through agility. So there, that's a banding about words somebody wrote on LinkedIn the other day. Hey, don't we have too much agility? And I thought, well, maybe in, in at least in conversation, but not so much in action So or mindset. <laughs> so, so Dave, if we look back, the past would suggest trying to manage and control risk. But is it possible that gaining agility is a better way of dealing with uh, the rapid change we've got in the world today? Oh, hi, and, and thank, that's a really interesting question. And uh, gosh, there's lots of things to talk about, particularly the fact that board members don't seem to be as worried as everybody else, which is probably probably even more worrying, maybe. But um, the, the, the concept of risk, it's uh, I, I can't help but be reminded of um, Karate Kid, you know, the uh, the uh, 80s film that was, you know, paint the wall, you know, that, uh, wax on, wax off. You know that he talks in that, and 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 obviously David Carradine in Kung Fu before that said, uh, you know that that there's many ways of dealing with the world, but the when you've got a lot of like movement and you need to go with it, you need to sort of relax and sort of you need to be like a uh, a reed rather than a stick, you know, and uh, and and ultimately I think that uh, that risk is a fundamental part of any. Thing that you're doing if you you know just change a, a single field on a website or release a, you know a patch to your self-driving algorithms on your car you know they're both risky for, for different reasons and the outcomes are, are never predetermined you know uh, as we move into more and more complex products and systems the risk just increases so to manage risk in a very traditional way I think would be naive and I think that the survey illustrates that I think that the only way you manage risk in this modern world is by doing and by observing you sort of inspect and adapt you you uh, you respond to change you you basically deliver frequently and observe the behavior of that and then get ready to take it out very quickly it's almost like you don't have risk mitigation you have the you have the ability to remove it it's sort of when you see it's gone wrong so i think that ultimately i think this survey highlights the fact that um, our management uh, discipline is finally realizing that you can't respond you know, in a proact in a totally proactive way to risk and manage the hell out of it, you have to just respond when the risks occur. Also, then it strikes me is that how many times have we spent millions of dollars dealing with a situation that never happens? Absolutely. I don't know if you've ever seen this on projects, and and particularly as engineers. And I'm a I'm a self-confessed software engineer. 
or uh, I guess I should say software craftsman. Oh, no, maybe I should say software artist. Artist. I never know what I should say now. But ultimately, you know, I've spent so much time sitting in meetings where there's always a guy that finds every possible combination of everything. And then we spend weeks building that software. And then we repro- and then in two years' time, we approach it and we realize that nobody ever went to that part of the software because, oh, well, you know, on a Wednesday at midnight, this thing never happens. And, of course, we built it out to do that. Yeah. So I do think that, that we need to be a lot more intelligent about how we manage for risk. And I think that that needs to bleed into everything we do. And it also means that we're going to get things wrong. And we have to also accept that those things happen. Uh, so another great example is, you know, we the self-drive car, Tesla, the um, uh, self-drive car, and they had that car accident where that guy died. And it was all over the news. Oh, it's a disaster. How many car accidents do we have in the U.S. with human beings all the time, right? You have to make a choice. You could drive incredibly slowly, like like I was going to say like my grandma, but she drives quite quickly. But, you know, <laughs> my mother-in-law, don't get in the front of her. She would destroy it. But anyway, but, you, you know, you could drive really slowly and you could or you kind of like say, well, you know, life's a risk. I'm going to make certain choices. And, and I think that that also talks about that. And obviously agility, but I'm biased, would be at the heart of, of, of a modern, more intelligent risk-based approach. Yeah. Now, before we started this conversation, you and I were talking a bit about the, the agility aspect of it and the focus, whether it's on the method, the mindset or the results. What's your take on that? It's funny that agile is ultimately all about managing managing in in the unknown right it's all about managing in uncertainty and i think that the disciplines of agile things like scrum the you know the, the this method kind of stuff ultimately is just there to get you that mindset to think about this very much that you to make you realize uncertainty there's a there's a certain exercise in our professional scrum master training that ken in ken schwaber the creator of scrum with jeff created and and i can't tell you what the exercise is because it's one of those oh my gosh exercises but it's all about making you realize you're a lying cheating person i was going to use an experiment best not do that on a public thing but you're lying and cheating and and ultimately i think that you realize that with there's a lot of false assumptions in the way we approach work um you, you talk about that in your book, you know, the dummies book about decision making, the fact that we, we often make decisions, we pretend that we're making them based on all these facts, but really it's just a gut feeling and we're using those to justify it, you know. You're ultimately, we, we need to step back and we need to say, hey, if we do anything, we've got some challenges and risk and unknown that we're dealing with and we need to explicitly manage that. And I think Agile is about that. It's about being very explicit and being very transparent about those things and, and ultimately it's a mindset that's reinforced by some discipline, which the methods obviously highlight. Right, right. So it's very much about focusing on the results. Yeah, the outcomes, really. And, yeah, and, yeah. and hopefully those outcomes are with the customer. You know, we, we should be measuring not just the cycle time of getting work done, which often we maniacally focus on with things like velocity. We should be focusing on the time, a colleague of mine says, a time to learning, the time that we're actually taking this hypothesis, delivering it to our customers, learning from it and getting that feedback back. Which is, I think that's the thing that we need to be very conscious of. And if you're in a risk or in a risky situation, you know, then that is ultimately 
you, you, you know, you're, you're sort of nervous until people start using it, until enough people start using it, until that situation happens. And, to, you know, you, you need to get that. And, and obviously, you try to force that earlier with a smaller subset, you know, like the Amazon solution where you deliver to a very small subset functionality continuously you're delivering. And then you see if they are and then you switch it on, you switch it off and, and you make decisions like that. So you're a lot more proactive. We're talking also about the, I did the webinar for Agile India in the middle of November on a Friday night at eight o'clock. So I'm astounded <laughs> that anybody showed up. But the conversation there was about pivoting to an agile leadership through decision making. And of course, what most of the line of questions that came in had to do with, with this worldview of traditional command and control. And then we've got over on the other side, the letting go of control in order to reclaim it through flexibility, agility, and so forth that's a big shift. So when you're working with executives, what's your experience around bridging the, those two different worldviews so that the new world looks friendly and, and approachable? There is this definite change, but I don't see it at the exec level. Executives kind of want this. They're, they're very Now, whether they actually do it is a, a different question, but they definitely really, you know, you say to them, okay, we want to empower your teams to make decisions. And they're like, yeah, that sounds great. We've, they've never wanted to make decisions. We need to make, they need to make decisions. They're closer to the problem. Let's go to it. If you, you and you know, you give this sort of list of agile characteristics, you need to, you know, rejoice in failure or learning. You need to, you know, you need to deliver smaller chunks. You need to, you need to plan broader in terms of vision and, and but you know smaller in terms of uh, actually what you and actually do you need to you know you, you talk about all these things with them and they're like yeah they get it the challenge that i find is that the amorphous blob of middle management and, and i say that in in an endearing way <laughs> though it doesn't sound just, very just in case somebody's feeling blobby at the moment yes <laughs> no i just think and they have a very hard time because these executives have this grand vision and uh, they, they say all the right things, but ultimately they then ask for the middle managers to, when's that project going to be done? Exactly, 100%. We don't want any, you know, we're, we're planning everything on this. It needs to be 100% done. You're like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, and then, okay, well, you, we need this. Can't you just move these people around, these resources around? Can't Bob work on those five projects? Can't, you know. So they're, they're sort of living in this middle world, this sort of like where the rubber meets the road. And it's incredibly difficult for them. You know, they, you know Agile is actually about a lot more discipline. But on the day-to-day -day basis, the, con the system kind of disciplines sort of disappear in favor of result-based disciplines, such as, you know, delivering valuable software frequently and looking at it, talking about it with your stakeholders, getting that feedback back into the loop, planning frequently. All of this is very disciplined, but it's less about the process and more about the teams. It's less about the, you know, those those milestones, those events, those, those uh, circumstantial indicators and more about the actual indicators themselves. So it is a significant change. It's, it's hard for them, you know, and if you believe some of my colleagues, you know, from the from some other communities, and I was going to say, but I best not, they would say, just get rid of middle management, get, get rid of them. You know, there's no, there's no value that they add, but they do add value. They, you know, they, they provide a lot of structure in a world that is often unstructured. They provide, you know, they, 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 they help their teams if they're effective middle managers. Bottom line, though, is that they need to be equipped to make the right decisions. They need to be equipped to use, you know, their, their bosses need to stop asking them talking out both sides of their face, as it were. And, 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 and then if they're allowed to do that, then I think they will be su successful. But it is t it's a tricky problem.
One of my other programs here was with Michael Pakanowski, not on this podcast, but on my previous one. And we were talking about the fact that in a seven-tier organization from a bureaucratic point of view, by level four, the executives can no longer see what the impact of decisions has on the marketplace, on the, on the customer. So if there's a role for middle management to play, it's to continually connect those dots up so that, so that these, you know, the whole, the, the view is in sight. You know, actually know what terrain you're on with respect to the customer values. And isn't that an interesting point? What you said was, I think, very, very interesting. It sort of goes back to something else we were talking about before the uh, before the show, or the, well, the the fact that we're sort of inverting organisations now. We're sort of turning them over, and uh, we're turning them to customer centric, and that means that the 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 only people that are valuable really are the people, or the most valuable people, are the people that are directly interacting with the customers, either directly, you know, servicing them or delivering products that are directly servicing them. You know, they're sort of of like that level and everybody else is helping them so you can almost think that that it sort of inverted as it were so instead of a traditional hierarchy that's a sort of a pyramid going down until you're right at the bottom and you know you're kind of like just doing everything you'd sort of turn it up where these people are the most important people because they're the people that are directly connected to the customer you know the fact is uh, just to use a, a, a supermarket analogy you know the most important people in supermarkets are not the executives they're the people that are working on the on the till, the people, you know, selling the tinsel, they're the people, you know, making sure the shopping trolleys are in the right place, they're, they're the people that are making sure the products are on the thing, everybody else is superfluous to that, and I think, to use an, an Amazon, it, it's so funny that they, at their busiest times, everybody's, you know, packing boxes, and everybody cares about that, and customers, and, and it really does make a huge difference, you know, it really does, just that culture of everybody caring about the customer, knowing that the customer is the number one and we we give great lip service to it but the agile revolution i think will really gain uh, huge momentum when we connect those two that focus on customers and that empirical empowered team kind of model those two things are the most, if you get that together you're gonna i mean that's what it's all about right well, I can't agree with you more, but at the same time, when you're saying this, the first thing that comes to my mind is, all right, we've got this huge focus, at least in big companies, on shareholder value. That's the mm. mantra. And of course, yes, when most of us kind of go, oh, yeah, that's really, that's the fundamental source of a lot of disengagement because that's not value to the many, that is value to the few. So if, if, what's the pivot, you know, in your experience, what's the pivot between at the mindset, both the board level and the executive level, and, and in the cultural, you know, really the, 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 the beliefs that are embedded in cultural decision making away from or to broaden it out from, from shareholder value to real value in the customer and in, in the society. I don't really have an answer because unfortunately what you've, what you've said is the fun and, and we continuously reinforced that focus by changing the way in which uh, va- t- that value is taxed even, you know, so, you know, ultimately I think the, the control of capital is fundamentally reducing the ultimate long-term value of the companies. You know, a great example is GE, right? You know, Jeff Emmert was doing an amazing job, uh, uh, in my opinion, uh, delivering a a transformation. In fact, he, you know, he navigated GE through some very turbulent times, you know, uh, obviously September 11th, a huge energy crisis, uh, 2007 with the, with some businesses that weren't necessarily created for dare I say success, you know, the capital part of his business, etc. And he 
maniacally focused on transforming the organization to an information-rich organization, a company that is very uh, digital by its uh, very nature and, you know, trying to change it. And, and he was pushed out by a, an investor, by a, a rogue, a veritably small owner as well of, of GE stock. And because he wasn't getting the from the gut, you know, the 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 the, the previous CEO's return, you know, the, the level of you know shareholder return that you would expect. And so there's no short and easy answer. I, the, the, obviously, the answer that everybody gives when asked this question is that uh, long term value uh, share value is sustained by a maniacal focus on the customer. It focus on employees, actually, employees first, who then service the customer best to the best of their abilities, which then drives up value of the company and, and ultimate profitability. The reality, though, is that most investors aren't long-term investors. They're short-term investors. And that means that you, do, you, get, a, you get a fundamental disconnect between those two things. So, so I don't have any answers for, for that other than if you do the right thing, the right thing does you. That's what I always hope. Again, a, a grandma expression, and and I think that by servicing your customers effectively, you, you it really does end up doing the right thing. And um, it is though ironic that every time I try to use a different company, you know, like you know, I'm, I, I can't just use Amazon for this stuff. I'm frequently disappointed <laughs> because customer seems to be a mystery to a lot of these organisations that are more focused on cost and efficiency and all of these things, which I'm like, no, these things come if you do the customer thing right, but they shouldn't come in, in, instead of the customer. And it's funny because when you, when you talk about that, I, I, I'm drawn back to a quote I think I put in one of the Huffington Post articles I wrote on, on companies that are mimic life principles, using principles of life in their, in their cultural DNA. And it was, a, it was a quote by Paul Pullman who had been questioned by a short-term investment person who sort of said, hey, you know, if I invest in your company, how fast can I see money? He says, just don't, don't invest in us. Don't, don't go there because we're here for the long haul. And we're not here for the short turnaround. And so if you can't support our goals in the long run, don't bother. And it was brilliant. You know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing and you'd be much better off reading the real quote as opposed to listening to my version of it. But it was really brilliant stand, uh, leadership stand on here's what we stand for and here's what we don't stand for. So as boundary setting goes, it was brilliant. And actually, there's a really also a great quote. This is by uh, Kiichi Takoda, the second president of Toyota. And they, they were in the loom business. And I think that this is really interesting about length of sort of investment and a sort of focus on that. And so uh, some, some thieves uh, had stolen some of the loom designs, you know, or left the company and the like. And, and he says the thieves may be able to follow the design plans and produce a loom, but we are modifying and improving our looms every day. They do not have the expertise gained from the failures it took to produce the original. We do not be concerned. We need to only continue as always making our improvements. So basically this sort of like more long-term focus, this, this ultimate, the journey and, and there's a lot of people that want to shortcut the sort of route to agile and the shortcut the route to customer centricity and shortcut all of that stuff. But ultimately, I don't think you can. I think that that learning, that engagement with the customer, you know, every time you 
what do they say? Every time you have an argument with your wife, you learn something new if you're smart, <laughs> you know. And um, but the you know the, the point is that it's that sort of journey with your customer, and you have to be you have to have that kind of relationship that sustains that, and that that sort of changes everything if you think in that way. And and yeah, I think that long-term shareholder value is something we we need to seek, but not if we incentivize capital gains the way we do, and not if we incentivize. Uh, investments and um, and hedge funds the way we do, unfortunately. But anyway, I can't I can't change those things. I'm afraid. But what you are speaking to is the importance of the metrics in in torquing or tweaking or driving the dynamics inside a company and and the focus for decision making. So so that's important. So if you're incentivizing something, you want to know what you're actually what the dynamic is. What's the interaction that you create by incentivizing something? Because frequently the idea is to incentivize, and but it's but the actual outcomes do do not work well. So they do the incent part, but they don't observe what the results are, and that's really that's where the where the insights are gained for any kind of adjustments or or, or if we're going to use that word again the, the the agility word that sort of says we need to switch around here and go go a different direction yeah it's people often say what's the most important single thing for becoming agile you know what what should we focus on and i think one of the most important things is to think about what you're measuring I think that, uh, you know, I've recently been doing some work with uh, uh, Jeff Gothard. I wrote a blog with him and, and uh, Lean UX is one of the books that he's written. And one thing that's interesting about Lean UX is, uh, and, and his philosophy, it's about thinking about how you can instrument the, the, the results, you know, thinking about the measures and then using those measures to feed back into a process, sense and respond. You know, that's sort of like that loop that he talks a lot about because you need those measures in place to incentivize the right changes to the behavior and but they're hard because if you concentrate on things like velocity which which is obviously you know scrum.org you know we're known for being scrum is known for being you know velocity but i don't actually like velocity i i i use it like everybody but ultimately i care about that learning and that and that and that real value that we're trying to deliver and trying to get that back into the because so i can make you know using an empirical process the right decisions every at least every two weeks in terms of what i'm focused on next and and and, and i think that, that getting those measures is is crucial but they're very hard to get imagine you know writing a list of things that you want not in terms of the, the things that you want but the outcomes that they that they they provide i tried to do that with my four and a half year old the other day i was talking about santa's list and i said okay you know you want um he wants a lot of things and why do you want this particular toy and he and he looked at me and said, "Because I do." And, and I remember, that, and I was like, "No, no, but why? What are you going to do with it? What what things are you going to, you know, what games, what adventures are you going to have with it?" And then he looked at me and said, uh, "Loads and loads that I don't even know yet." Uh, don't be so stupid, Dad. But but we have to. And then, and then I gave up and went back to uh, SpongeBob and all his friends. But the um, but the, what we need to do is we need to think about this list of wants, not in terms of the want, but in terms of the outcome it's trying to achieve. And then we need to say, how do we measure that outcome to be effective? And I'm not saying spend millions of hours thinking about it, you know, dressed in robes or anything. But you, it's sort of like you need to think a bit about that, and then. You bring that into your process and then voila, magic happens. You know. Exactly. One of the things I, that I see a lot of, and it's very easy to see, is, is coming from the outside into organizations, is patterns. You know, things, things that are going on in the organization, running on autopilot, running the organization on autopilot, 
and and yet can often actually not serve the organization well in terms of responding to fast changing conditions or surprises that come flat out of nowhere. And of course, in a period of time where we've got this kind of exponential change, massive change going on, you really have to know where these patterns are coming from. What which ones have you witnessed that get in the way of of faster responsiveness? And and a lot of companies are actually working against themselves. I noticed as well, holding them in place. What what have, what do you see there? Talking about variability is a really interesting thing. The fact that most systems aren't built for variability, and as you increase the variability, the ability of the system to respond to it drops. And the reason why we use an empirical approach to software delivery, which is what Scrum and Agile and the like is, is because that is all about dealing with that lack of certainty and, and, and variability. But it's interesting, you, you, you're asking for particular things that I see. Obviously, the annual planning cycle is ridiculously it's like an anti-pattern of biblical proportions, as you as you know. But, and I'm not saying you shouldn't think about a year, <laughs> but it should be rolling and it should be brief. You know, the priorities should be relatively easy to determine and they shouldn't be bottom up. They should be top down. Yes, there are some things that will, you know, you're going to have to, there's some non-discretionary spending that you're going to have. Now, depending on the life cycle, depending on where your products are, depending on your maturity, that non-discretionary spending will, will, you know, will, will happen. But when it comes to discretionary spending, well, spending months doing planning is, is just a stupid idea, particularly as we, you, you have no idea what's going to happen in a year's time. Instead, what you need to do is determine your priorities at a broad level and then you need to allocate funds based on those broad product uh, uh, priorities call them products for want of a better word and then you need to just allow them those teams to determine what's the most important things for those areas and then hopefully if they're empowered and and and, and they're connected to the customer they'll make the right decisions if they're not you'll see it because they'll be delivering the wrong decisions frequently and you're going to get rapid f- feedback and, and and instrumentation you know data will, will support that so i think you know annual planning is a is another thing. The other thing that's really interesting, the maniacal focus on efficiency as, as, as manifest in automation. Toyota did not use robots to the level that any of its competition did. And, and only now are they starting to use as much, you know, their automation level was relatively small. Their IT level was relatively small in comparison to you know the Fords and the General Motors and the like and you have to ask yourself well hang on a minute I thought they're the poster child of quality or they're the poster child of lean but automation and systems and very complex systems get in the way of dealing with reliability and we spend a great deal of time investing in that in an organization with the remit of efficiency like we i mean i i don't know but crm implementations how many crm implementations do you see where you get these forms that you create about customers and about deals and about that are so damn complicated because they're trying to deal with all this stuff because that's more efficient as opposed to keep it simple and allow sales reps and sales managers etc to augment their process these processes minimal smallest possible instead of most complicated possible think to the you know the ultimate solution rather than the the simple solution i see that being a huge pattern that that gets repeated over and over again and you sit in a meeting and it's like well we've got to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this instead of what's the smallest thing that we can roll out that gives us the most value 
and uh, and I think those so annual planning over over complexizing if that's such a word which it probably isn't um, those are some patterns that I see over and over again and probably the same ones that you see as well well, it's funny because I just did an interview with uh, a, a, someone, a colleague in the, who works for a Norwegian energy company. And in their company, they got rid of budgeting and discovered that they gained what they were doing by doing this budgeting process. They already had great, great ways of keeping track of performance. And in fact, they're looking at even updating those even more. And I'm looking at a tool right now out of Hungary that actually enables an organization to, to do that without the complicate, without, you know, really bring it down to something simpler. And anyway, they discovered that with budgeting, they were looking 80% of the time they were looking back, 20% they were looking forward. And by getting rid of budgeting, they flipped that. So now 80% of their focus is forward and 20% is back. And that's a huge gain in terms of agility alone, in terms of keeping your head up and seeing what's going on. So that you know, the patterns are these habits. I call them habits, but they're, they're these habits that we're doing them because we've always done them, but we really might want to look at that as a, you know, reflect on it a bit and say, what do we want to do here? Yeah, and, and, and it's not that it's, I mean, it, you sort of, you know, you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars, you, you know, you're kind of like, oh my God, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars. Let's spend hundreds of millions of dollars of time working out what we're going to spend these hundred million dollars on. I can see why all of these things happen. I can, you know, and it, and it makes total sense at some level, but, but ultimately, yeah, budgeting in particular just drives me mad that they invest so much time and it, often is a complete waste of time yeah. um, because neither is the problem that they're solving s- stable or how they're going to solve it stable. So you're like, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah. <laughs> well, then why are we spending so much time? And there's evidence that uh, that the that those companies that invest in, but at least in, from banks, I have a research document that, uh, that she provided to me, uh, where where do- banks that do invest in budgeting actually are less profitable. And, and it all makes sense because you're pouring a lot of money and energy into something that it's a cut and paste exercise. So, but anyway, appreciate that because now, of course, next thing, question is how, how do you move traditional executives or, or how do you help them release control on things and move into moving flexibly or to even engaging and adopting a freer outlook and, and greater autonomy inside their companies? I think um, there's one very important point, which is going to really, maybe it will surprise you, maybe it won't. We talked a little bit about this earlier, so I guess it won't now, Dash. I let the cat out of the bag. (laughs) But ultimately, I don't think it's about agility. I think you need to, if you want to get your executives to buy into this and you want to be, and and make the right decisions around it, it needs to be driven by customers. I think agility is at its heart about, uh, you know, responding to customers in a more effective way. They could be internal customers. They don't have to be people with checkbooks necessarily. Well, not traditional checkbooks. They could be, you know, internal customers. They could be, uh, you know, partners, you know, etc. But they, uh, citizens, if you're in the government or, or whatever, if you're a nonprofit, they could be members. Or, but ultimately, I think that we need to be res- more responsive because our customers need us to be more responsive, right? So... If you connect agility into that and it being a set of tools, like many other things, to helping you effectively manage these very fickle, uh, confused customers in a more effective way, then, and I think that that should be the focus. If you get your executives to buy into the need to respond in that way, then everything else just becomes easy. And that obviously then the next logical step is that you start from the edges in your organization. You don't start from the middle. You don't, you know, pick 
a lot of these sort of transformations and changes tend to pick the things that are considered to be the least risky, the least, you know, don't, don't rock the boat. And those departments are like managing the internal intranet or the le- learning management system, which, you know, two people use. You shouldn't. You should start with things that are customer centric and you should use these techniques to because most customers naturally want to work in these and, and, and their proxies, you know, the people that manage those customers naturally want to work in this way. And, you know, they they, they, they applaud you if you do it, in, in, if you if you communicate it without the mumbo jumbo and the words uh, that they really want to. And then if you start at those edges, then you slowly then the support organizations you start having some very interesting conversations around dependencies and around support and around, you know, help desks and operations and, you know, all of the, all the ancillary finance, HR, all of these things sort of like then have to become more agile to respond to the teams that are agile that are connected to these customers. So I, I recommend a very, a very clear sort of customer first kind of agile transformation or agile change or, or a transition I'd like to describe it as. And, and, uh, and I think that if you do that, then not only do you get the benefit of making the right decisions, meaning that you're only doing the things that are just, just necessary to service the customers in an effective way, you also get the, get the business case naturally sort of like occurring from that. But anyway, that, that's my, my particular take. And there's, there's lots of things that can help do that, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, Lean Startup or Lean UX or all of these types of initiatives, DevOps for getting stuff out. All of that stuff just comes. It shouldn't be the focus, though. I don't want to do DevOps. I don't want to do Agile. I don't want to do – I want to – deliver lots of valuable stuff to my customers have them love me like like no other and then um, buy more stuff from me and then allow me to grow and get even more fabulous <laughs> yeah, that's, that. that's possible absolutely <laughs> fabulous as it were yes. yeah. any tips you'd like to share for the those people who are either on the they've got this massive tool and of course the, the theory is if you just apply the tool all as well but in fact the tool comes with a person it comes with their own place where they've come to in terms of their understanding of how to work with agility and so forth or how to work even with this world today so any tips that you would suggest to anyone listening to this program on how to move forward with these ideas in a way that edges things along and 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 reduces the shock to the system shall we say yeah i think i think number one is don't give up (laughs) i think you know this is Thomas Friedman, you know, Thomas Friedman, awesome, you know, the world is flat. And he wrote a book called Thank You for Being Late. And and it's a great book, apart from the last three chapters, where he goes on about Minnesota for for some reason. Anyway, uh, (laughs) I don't totally know what happened there. But, uh, you know, he said that that is the model that we need to follow, you know, Minnesota in the 50s. And I'm like, okay. Anyway, but we'll ignore that, those last three chapters. But the start of it's an awesome book. And he's such a good communicator. And he talks about the fact we're in this age of accelerations, right? And, uh, you know, whether it be uh, globalization or whether it be climate change, man-made or not, um, whether it be Moore's law or the, the impact of technology on that, you know, and, and we're in this hugely complex world where things are changing always. And so the first thing I'd always say is, you know, the first tip that I have is like, you're in the great, this is, imagine being a loom maker in the industrial revolution, or a steam expert in the industrial revolution. You are these people. So get excited about it. 
don't be despondent of course you're going to be annoyed and there's going to be people with clogs throwing them at you all the time you know but you know first you know don't give up get excited get excited about this change because it is most of the people that you work with and i work with and probably maybe listening to this you're in the middle of it so one get excited and be happy that you are and you're not a a long distance truck driver whose job may be replaced by this huge Tesla truck or a, or a, or, or, or a lawyer whose who's AI is going to potentially replace or, you know, the list goes on, you know, one, get very excited. Two, don't get all religious about it. You know, it's not about Scrum versus XP versus Lean versus this versus that. These are all amazing ideas. Everybody that writes this, well, the majority, maybe not everybody, comes from good place. And we all are trying to help and we all come from our own point of view. Consider that and then take these and, and, and use these to help you deliver value to the customer. So then remember that it's all about the customer. So when you're communicating to your boss or to your person, their employee, say, hey, yeah, so why do we do this daily? Well, why we do this daily and we'd love you to come is because we talk about the work that we did yesterday and the work we do tomorrow to help the customer, what stuff we're doing, and you give us this perspective or you give us this perspective. Let's bring that. You know, always talk about it from, from that point of view. And then if you start doing that, you become less that guy talking about method and process and become that guy talking about customers and helping them do things better. And then, you know, I, I guess, you know, smile. I think, you know, we, we have these values in Scrum and I was very disappointed, you know, courage, focus, commitment, respect, openness. I was disappointed we didn't have humor in that as a value and maybe get Jeff and Ken when I introduced the idea may have possibly told me I was barking mad and but you know I think that you should smile as you do it because you know we're at this we're at an amazing time and yes there's lots that drive us all batty and but those things all come and those things all check go and you've got to have fun doing this and you know and laugh at yourself when you make stupid decisions about hey what we need to do is we need to get every we need to do this big mob thing and and then it's a complete disaster and you're like oh well, that didn't work very well, did it? Because, you know, everybody's speaking a different language or they're all at 8 p.m. on a Friday night because you forgot that everybody's in India. And you're like, oh, what am I doing? You know, but then accept that and go, you know, get rid of the hubris, get rid of the arrogance. And uh, and then I think you'll have fun. You'll deliver valuable stuff. You'll make your cust- make everybody happy and have clear direction and it'll all be goodness. Anyway, that's my opinion anyway. That works for me. Dave, where do people go for more information? You can always go to wubbleyouscrum.org, which is awesome. We have a great blog. We have our professional scrum trainer community, about 200 and actually about exactly 204, writing about this stuff every day. I'm fortunate enough that I'm part of a a community that that gets it, that Ken Schwaber made a very strong effort to ensure that a certain type of thinkers all came together, and and we we do that, and we've got a great community. Come and look look at our blogs. Come and visit our material. Materials and and uh, and get into the conversation, but do it with, with a smile, not a sneer. And then uh, and then you'll definitely get me chatting and and having some fun with you. I love it. Thanks so much, Dave, for being on the program. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. With our conversation today, for more information on what I do, go to in, from insight to action dot com. My work is about business transformation, but it's specifically about connecting personal leadership 
to making a massive difference in the world and then adapting the organizational cultures, the business cultures, so they can actually accomplish something other than meet the next quarter. So that's my work. It's much more than that, obviously. I've written for the Huffington Post, Great Workplace Cultures. I have a chapter out in uh, The Intelligence of the Cosmos by Irvin Laszlo on deep dynamics, networks, and, and um, epigenetics and decision-making, emotions in other words. Uh, and also I'm looking, I've, I've also written a chapter for Great Workplace Cultures and just within this last week, a, chat, a book, an article came out through Business Expert Press in New York called Successfully Moving to an Executive Role, which is very much around the inner work that people need to do in order to adapt to today's incredible world. So thank you very much for joining me. You can certainly connect with me on LinkedIn, D-A-W-N-A-H Jones. Uh, you can also go to Twitter, E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones. And that should be it. And hope you enjoy the next couple of weeks. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you very much for joining me.